about the challenge of realization in our lives. That is the possibility of actually opening to different and deeper and new levels of understanding. That we have that possibility And how can we actualize that? The Buddha spoke of enlightenment, of freedom, of realization, of understanding, as something that can actually be done, can be realized. How is it possible for us to do that? One quality which is necessary, which provides the energy for that possibility is the quality of urgency. It's often in our lives we get caught in conditioned habit patterns of behavior. We get into various ways and patterns of doing things. We get carried along by those habituated responses and we lose the sense of urgency in our lives. We lose the sense of what's possible. Just imagine if we were to die tomorrow or to die this evening. What would, what would we not have done in our lives that we wish to? It's that kind of reflection which can arouse a quality of urgency and of importance. When we see that our lives actually present us with an opportunity of transforming our consciousness. The path of meditation practice is a path of purification. It's the purification of our consciousness, of our minds, of our hearts, of greed, and of hatred and of delusion, of uprooting those factors, uprooting those defilements, we can come to the realization of deeper levels of purity. But it takes understanding that there's an urgency to it, that we can't keep postponing it because our lives go by very quickly. The Buddha spoke of one way, the path of purification being one way. What is this one way, this way of purity? It's the way of awareness, of mindfulness, of attention. And awareness does not mean a certain technique or a certain method or a certain tradition. All of those are much too limited understandings. Awareness has to do with a quality of mind. It's fairly obvious that if we want to understand what's true, if we want to understand what the truth is about our experience, about who we are, about the nature of the mind and body, the nature of our lives, that we have to look. We have to pay very careful attention because that's where the truth is to be discovered. It's not to be discovered particularly in philosophical speculation or thinking about things or blind belief or having opinions, but rather in our direct intuitive experience of what's true in each moment. That's where the discovery will take place. And this is what the Buddha meant when he said, there is one way for the purification of beings. It's the way of awareness. Whichever particular tradition or technique or method we use. So the challenge for us, the challenge of the urgency is to realize that this awareness 
must be practiced, must be developed all the time, in every circumstance, whether we're on retreat here or in our daily lives. Can we pay attention when we're sitting, when we're walking, when we're lying down, when we're cooking, when we're eating, when we're bathing, when we're in relationship, when we're talking? Can we cultivate that sense of attentiveness? Because that's what's necessary. And that's what we practice here. We, we undertake this kind of intensive training in order to cultivate this quality of awareness, of continuous awareness, and deep and careful attention. When we do this, when we start looking at our experience and our lives in this careful way, we begin to discover that there are many different kinds of struggles and conflicts in our lives. The first noble truth of the Buddhist teachings is the truth of suffering. The fact that in our lives there's conflict, there's struggle, there's unhappiness, so part of this path of discovery, of purification, is to understand the nature of this struggle. What is it that causes suffering for ourselves, whether it's in our meditation practice or in our life experience? What's the nature of this struggle? It's expressed very succinctly in the texts, and it says, that when we're associated with what we don't want, we suffer. When we're with that which we don't like and don't want, we suffer. And when we're parted or abandoned by what we do want, what we do love, what we do like, we suffer. So it's pretty simple. When we resist what comes, we suffer. And when we cling to what's leaving, we suffer. Things are coming and going all the time. And so to the degree that there's resistance and attachment, we suffer a good part of the time, or in that kind of struggle. Is it ever, is it ever useful? You know, there's a struggle or conflict that we find ourselves in, whether it's in the sitting practice, or in our relationships, or in our work, when we find ourselves in a situation of conflict, does it serve any useful purpose for us? It depends how we are relating to it. If we're simply lost, lost in and identified with it, and not paying attention to how the conflict or how the struggle is being created, we don't learn anything. And there's no wisdom being developed. And so we just enmesh ourselves further and further in the conflict. But there's another way of relating to this struggle in our lives. And that is by taking the conflict as a feedback, as a signal. It's telling us something. When we're in a state of suffering, that's a signal to us that there's some kind of resistance going on, or there's some kind of attachment. Because that's the cause of suffering. So if we can examine and investigate these particular times, then there's a possibility for a very profound growth of wisdom. What are the kinds of resistance? What do we have resistance to? One of the major areas of resistance is resistance to pain. Most of us don't like pain. We don't like to feel painful sensations. And of course, this is a big part of what people experience, especially in coming to a retreat, and especially at the beginning of a retreat, when you sit down, and in a very short time, the knees hurt, and the back hurts, and the head hurts, and it all hurts, 
and we don't like it. We, we resist the unpleasantness. And this resistance can take many forms. It can take the form of downright aversion. I don't like this. I wish it would go away. That's reasonably obvious. There are more subtle kinds of resistance that are helpful to become aware of. One common kind of resistance that comes in the mind when we're dealing with pain could be called the project mentality. You know, we come to a sitting with a certain project in mind. This sitting, I'm going to work on the pain in my shoulder. And we kind of sit down and we make that our project for the hour, and we massage it and we try to move it all you know, with our attention and our minds, with this goal in mind you know, of getting rid of it. That's not being open to it. That's not really being with it. Sometimes, even if we don't have a project mentality, we start bargaining. You know, I'll watch you if you'll go away. And so we're willing to be with it for one minute or five minutes or ten minutes, but always with that sense in the mind, okay, I'll be with you, but you better leave. That also is not awareness. That's not openness. It's not being mindful. It's a kind of resistance. Tolerating pain is a kind of resistance, where we sit there very stoically, enduring it. Okay, I'll sit. And I'll feel it. And it's that heavy, heavy quality of mind that is simply enduring what's happening. That's not mindfulness either. That's not being open. Another favorite with pain is the sidelong glance. You know, with the breath, and this pain starts coming, it's becoming stronger and stronger, and instead of turning the attention to it in a full way, kind of you know, out of the corner of our mind's eye, we give it a glance, hoping it'll disappear if we don't actually look at it fully. All of these ways of resistance keep us closed to the truth of that moment. That if we're really committed to seeing what's true, and what's true in a particular moment is a painful feeling, a painful sensation, we have to be willing, we have to be honest enough, and also courageous enough, to settle back and go in to explore and experience what that sensation is about. After some time, we actually begin to appreciate pain. And when we get over the fear of it and begin to relax into it in an allowing way, in a soft way, there's a tremendous amount that can be learned about our mind's relationship to unpleasant situations. And the mind can get very strong and very fearless. You've probably noticed, even in these few days, and certainly as the retreat goes on, that at first even a little bit of discomfort or a little bit of pain can cause a tremendous amount of agitation and restlessness and unhappiness and avoidance. But as our mind gets stronger, as our mind gets bigger, wider, it's able to accommodate a great deal more painful feeling without any movement without any resistance. And of course, this strength carries over into situations in the world. Instead of shrinking from painful situations, we're able to be with them in a much more fearless relationship. So part of the practice is to open to the pain and also to, to become aware of all the different kinds of resistance that the mind can create with it. 
We also have resistance to unpleasant emotions. There are many feelings, many emotions that arise that are painful, that are painful to feel. Feelings of loneliness, feelings of hopelessness, feelings of unworthiness, feeling stupid, feeling fear. All of these are the psychological or emotional analog to physical pain. And we do the same thing with them. We cut ourselves off from those feelings because we don't like to be with them. They're unpleasant. They hurt. But to the degree that we cut ourselves off or avoid or resist, to that degree, we fragment ourselves. We're saying these feelings, this part of ourselves, is not okay, it's not acceptable. And so we create this split. If we want to come to a fullness of being, to a totality of being, what's necessary is for us to open to the entire range of our experience, whether it's bodily sensations or different emotions and feelings, to begin to learn that it's okay to feel these things, that it's okay to feel lonely, it's okay to feel sad, it's okay to feel unworthy, it's okay to feel hopeless, and it's okay to feel fear. Because as long as we're resisting them, we are actually feeding them. Now, if you take two playing cards and you lean them against one another, that they support each other, the resistance you know, of one against the other actually supports them. You take one away and the other one falls down. In exactly the same way, our resistance to certain, whether physical sensations or certain emotions, actually is feeding them and locking them in. So the more we resist the feeling of whatever, loneliness or sadness, feeling stupid, feeling despairing, the more we resist it, the more power we give it. And we can settle back and say, it's okay to feel that. Feel stupid. Be as stupid as one can be. You know, or as lonely as one can be, or as despairing as one can be. If we can get comfortable, if we can get okay and allowing for that feeling, it loses that intense power. We begin to see that feelings, like everything else, are part of the passing show. These feelings come, and they're there for a while, and they disappear, and we're not involved in a struggle or conflict with them anymore. So a big part of the practice, as we begin to open up, is to be allowing for the entire range of physical sensation, of different emotions. We have to be... We have to start including all of this, gathering it back into ourselves, rather than pushing them aside. There's resistance to pain, there's resistance to different kinds of unpleasant emotions. There's also resistance to different kinds of situations. We find ourselves in situations that we don't like and we try pushing them away. There was one time in my practice, quite a few years ago when I was in India, I was doing a lot of intensive sitting, and I had gone up to the mountains during the hot season rented a house and was continuing with my practice. It was beautiful. It was high up in the Himalayas, fantastic view, very peaceful and quiet. And it was wonderful, it was like this heaven realm. And I'm sitting, rising, falling, rising, falling. And one day, just in, there was a field across the road below my house. The Delhi girls moved in. And the Delhi girls were this kind of paramilitary Girl Scout troop. 
from New Delhi. You know, they come up for their summer program. And it wasn't just that the Delhi girls moved in, but they set up these loudspeakers and were blasting Hindi film music from 7 in the morning till 10 at night. Couldn't believe it. <laughs> Here I was, you know, come to the Holy Land to meditate. All day long, for a month, they're blasting this, this film music. It was a great trial. And the first couple of weeks, I flunked. <laughs> because the mind was just getting more and more angry and irritated, and I started going around, you know, petitioning the neighbors to <laughs> see if we could close down the loudspeakers. There was nothing to do. What to do? There was nothing to do except surrender. And it took a while for the mind to actually let go of the resistance to it. But finally, after much frustration, rising, falling, rising, falling, hearing, 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 hearing. <laughs> and when the mind stopped resisting, when the mind stopped fighting with it, it was okay. There was not so much of a problem with the sound. The problem was with my reaction to it. The resistance is what causes the suffering. It's not the situation. It wasn't the sound. And when we can learn that, when we learn it with pain, when we learn it with emotions, when we learn it in different situations, we really begun, begin to understand in a much more profound way where the conflict in our minds come from, comes from. It comes from our relationship to experience, not from the experience itself. What else do we resist? We resist pain, we resist emotions, we resist certain situations. Often we find resistance arising with different, with different people in our lives. There must be certain people who bug you. And there are probably some people right on this retreat. There's a phenomenon called the Vipassana Vendetta. It's sort of the opposite of the Vipassana Romance. The Vipassana Vendetta is when there's one person around who you just can't stand. You know, that everything they do, you don't like the way they walk, talk, dress, eat. And it, gets, it can get even more intense when you actually know them, not only just sharing a room with them. There are people who are very difficult, whose energy is, can be very abrasive or obnoxious or harmful. And where there's that quality of difficulty with people, and so what do we do, generally? We generally throw up some kind of defense or barrier to protect ourselves from that kind of mm, unpleasant energy. But there's another way of relating in that situation. And that is dropping levels. When you stop to consider what it is that causes somebody to be very obnoxious, or very abrasive, or very hurtful. If we can look dispassionately, we see that the cause of that kind of behavior is always a tremendous amount of pain. People can be in so much pain and not know how to deal with it, that it comes out in that very unpleasant way. If we can drop down from the level of the behavior to the level of suffering that causes that behavior, it's possible to change our relationship. Instead of closing ourselves off to that person, to that personality, we can drop down and open up to the suffering that's in that person. And so we change our resistance, we change our anger, our irritation, our annoyance, our ill will, we change it to compassion. And it changes automatically as we open ourselves to that person's pain, to that person's suffering.
So that's a very um, helpful arena to work in in our lives when we find ourselves closing off to people. Because we're closing off on a particular level. That's the level of manifestation. And if we can drop down levels and receive their energy and understand where that behavior is coming from, it's possible for our hearts to open. There's resistance to pain, there's resistance to difficult emotions, there's there's resistance to different situations, to people. The last kind of resistance I'd like to mention is a kind of existential resistance to the existential transiency of things. That on some level, we all know, we all have some intuition of the emptiness of things. The emptiness coming out of the impermanence. That there's nothing very solid we can hold on to. And even though we try to grasp things for security, someplace in us we know that it's futile. But very often we don't like to really explore that, to really go into it. And so we close ourselves, or we resist really feeling the impermanence, feeling the emptiness, feeling the insubstantiality. I think you have some sense of what happens in our lives when we are playing out all these kinds of resistance. If we spend our lives avoiding pain and avoiding unpleasant emotions and avoiding difficult situations and avoiding unpleasant people and avoiding understanding the the impermanence of things. That's a very contracted life that's created. We're so busy avoiding things that are inherently part of being alive. We just create this very tight little narrow circle for ourselves. And then we wonder why we feel imprisoned. And it's that avoidance that avoidance of the unpleasant, which then conditions the strong sense of grasping and attachment in our lives. We try to hold on then to certain things for security. And so our mind bounces back and forth between resistance or avoiding everything which is unpleasant and then frantically trying to hold on to that which is pleasant. And that's how our energy gets bound up. We get tight. What is it that we get attached to? What are the things that the mind reaches out to for security? Because if we can see it, if we can see the process as it's happening, there's the possibility of letting go, of not getting caught or identified in that way. One of the most obvious things that we get attached to are sense pleasures craving for sense pleasures. Pleasant sight and sound and smell and taste and nice sensations in the body and pleasant thoughts and pleasant feelings. And the mind keeps craving for these sense pleasures as a way of avoiding the unpleasant. We look to them for our security, for our happiness, for our well-being. One of the great realizations that comes from paying attention and being aware of how things are happening is that craving or the wanting mind is itself a source of suffering. It doesn't actually bring the happiness that we're looking for. And it's a source of suffering in several different ways. When the mind is filled with wanting for what we don't have, whether it's a state of the body, 
only I were more beautiful, if only I were stronger, if only I looked this way or looked that way, or if only I had this, if only I had a new BMW, if only I had an old BMW. (laughs) 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 When we're craving that which we don't have, it's a mentality of poverty. It's a mentality of discontent. And the state of wanting, the wanting mind itself, is suffering, is a state of tension. And a way to experience that very directly, and none of this has to be taken on belief, it's really a question of investigating each one for ourselves to see whether this is true. The next time there's a strong desire in the mind, and perhaps you'll have at least one more before you leave. (laughs) Just the next time that there's a strong desire, be very mindful of what it feels like to have that desire in the mind, and then watch very carefully just at that moment when the desire leaves. And see very clearly the difference in how you feel when the desire is there and when the desire is gone. I think you'll find that even if there's a sense of pleasant anticipation when there's some desire or some fantasy going on in the mind, if you can stay with it and note the moment of its disappearing, I think you will notice that there is a huge sense of relief. It's like, and one settles back. As an example of this, just we'll do a little experiment. If you had to embody in your posture the wanting mind, how would you embody it? It's like, I want it. Okay, if, if you would just all do this for a minute. And just want, with, with your whole being, want, and hold it. Just hold it like that. How does it feel? It's not very comfortable, is it? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's quite off balance, and quite a lot of tension. And it's such a relief to, to let go of the wanting. So the wanting itself, the craving itself, the, the nature of that energy is suffering. It's suffering in another way. It's suffering because it's never satisfied. But even if they were, even if they were wanting and craving, and we, we satisfy, we, we accomplish getting what we want, it lasts for some time, and then things change, and we want something else. There's no end to craving. There's no end to desiring as a source of happiness or a source of fulfillment because things keep changing. So we keep looking. We keep wanting more and more. When I was teaching in uh, Africa last year, came across a wonderful kind of biscuit, cookie. The name of the, the, name of the cookies, the name on the box was Eat Some More. <laughs> it was Eat Some More Cookies. <laughs> it was perfect. You know, just, just one more, just one more. And of course, one is never satisfied. There's never enough. There's never an end to that. And the thing is that we know this. Someplace in us we know it. How many pleasant experiences have we had in our lives? Many. Countless numbers. We've all had, we've all been blessed in that way. Many, many pleasant sensations and delicious food and pleasant sounds unpleasant sights, but has it brought us the kind of completion or wholeness or peace or fulfillment that we're looking for? If it had, you probably wouldn't be here because it's not capable of providing that. When we look for happiness in the fulfillment of sense pleasure, in the craving or clinging at sense pleasure, we're setting ourselves up for frustration and futility because we're looking in the wrong place. It's not going to do it for us, and we all know that. And yet we keep on doing it. There's a Nasruddin story 
which illustrates this so well. For those of you who are new to the retreat circuit, Nasruddin was a Sufi teaching figure who was part, mm, part wise man, part fool, part crazy, part saint. And there are, there are hundreds of stories of Nasruddin, some of which have a point, some of which don't have a point. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes we make up the point. But anyway, one day Nasruddin was outside under a lamppost, scrounging on the ground, looking for the key to his house. He's out there on the ground, looking and looking and looking, and he can't find the key. So then his friends come, and they all start looking. And they're scrounging on the ground, digging up the dirt, and they can't find the key. Finally, his friends say to him, you know, well, where did you lose it? Where did you lose the key? And Nazardin says, in the house. And so this friend said, well, why, why are you looking under the lamppost? And Nazardin said, because there's more light here. <laughs> That's what we're doing. When we are caught up or bound, you know, conditioned to be looking for happiness, to be looking for a sense of fulfillment in craving more sense pleasures, it's like looking for the key under the lamppost when it's actually lost in the house. Because we're looking in a place that real happiness, real completion, real fulfillment is not to be found. So it's one kind of attachment that's very strong in our lives. And it's a very deeply conditioned, it's not superficial. Now this force of craving in the mind is the basic force that drives us through this round of samsara, this round of rebirth. So it's a very powerful force in our minds and in our lives. It's necessary to come to understand it, to work with it. There's another kind of attachment besides sense pleasure, sense craving, that mm, it's an attachment that we we hold on to again for a sense of security in our lives. And it's a source of tremendous conflict. And that is attachment to our opinions about things. We have a lot of opinions. We have opinions about everything. We have opinions, a lot of opinions about other people, opinions about politics, about economics, about social systems, about the Dharma, about meditation, opinions about mental noting, about slow walking. <laughs> a lot of opinions. To the degree that we're attached to our opinions, to that degree we're going to be in an adversarial position to somebody who has another opinion. We get into conflict. How many wars have been fought because people are attached to their views of things? Even spiritual views, religious views, people kill one another because of that strong attachment. And it's much more helpful, I think, to realize that the opinions we have are conditioned by our particular background. You know, the way we've been brought up and the conditioning influences, so we have certain opinions. And other people are going to see things from a slightly different perspective, another viewpoint. If we're not so attached to our way of seeing things, then it's possible to actually have some respect for other people. To have respect for what they know, for their viewpoint, for their understanding. And the possibility of us opening our minds a bit is greatly enhanced. And what I'm suggesting is not that we don't have opinions, because we do, and part of how we function as a human being, but it's a question of how firmly attached, how much we're clinging to them how much we make ourselves right and everybody else wrong. Because it's a very divisive attachment and the cause of tremendous conflict interpersonally, internationally. And it takes a very honest mind 
to really look at itself to see the degree to which we're holding on to our views. Because we can hear this and sort of nod wisely. Right, attachment to views is terrible. And be missing a lot of how we do it. And so it takes a lot of sensitivity and a lot of honest looking to see those places where we're holding on. Situations of conflict are often a very good feedback that that might be an area to look at. When we're in a conflict, when we're in a struggle, to see where we're holding on to our views. There's attachment to sense pleasures, a sense craving, there's attachment to opinions. The last attachment I'd like to talk about this evening is the one that is the most deeply rooted. It's at the root of all the others. And it's the most difficult one to begin to understand and to let go of. And that is the attachment we have to this idea of self, of I. That's where the craving comes from. And that's where the attachment to opinions comes from. We have this very strong belief, very strong attachment to the sense of self, sense of I. And the real heart of the meditation is to begin to both see that attachment and to begin to penetrate into the illusory nature of self, of I. To see that actually it is a concept. We construct it in our minds. It's not actually there. How do we construct it? How do we create this sense of self? It's created in the mind in each particular moment when there's an identification with a particular aspect of experience. A thought arises in the mind when we claim it as my thought. In that moment of adding the my, the self is created. Anger arises in the mind. I'm angry. That I'm is extra. We're adding that to the phenomena, to the energy of anger. Anger arises because of certain causes. Anger is present, it disappears. But when we claim it, when we identify with it, in that moment of identification, there is the I. My pain, my body, my house, my zafu, my whatever, the my is extra. And so what we want to do in the practice is to settle back into the truth of each moment's experience, to see how all these elements of experience are arising and passing, thoughts and feelings and emotions and sensations and the breath and sights and sounds. They're all arising and passing by themselves. They don't belong to anybody. Consciousness itself, knowing itself, is arising and passing away. It does not belong to anybody. Now, if you take a, uh, I forget what you call it, a, a torch that's on fire, a torch and there's a flame on top, and you whirl it around very quickly, what do you see? You see a circle. Is there really a circle there? No. There's, there's the appearance of a circle because this is moving so quickly. If your perception were, were quick enough, you would see exactly what was happening. You would see that there's this, this torch revolving very quickly. But because our perception is not so refined, what we see is a circle, a static, mm, static thing. In exactly the same way, this, this mind-body process, is a very rapidly changing process of sight, sound, smell, taste, sensation, thought, emotion. It's happening so quickly that it gives the appearance of something solid, some entity that's there. 
And so what we want to do in the practice is to refine our perception enough so we can begin to see that there's no circle and that there's no self, there's no being here. But rather what we call being is just this process of momentarily changing phenomena. That's a very radically different way of understanding what this is about. Another example of how the self is created through the use of concept. Most of you are probably familiar with the constellation, the Big Dipper. When you go out at night and you look up at the sky, and there are the stars, the Big Dipper. This is a... I'd like to ask you a question. This is kind of the first quarter examination for the retreat. Okay. Please consider carefully. Is there really a Big Dipper up in the sky? <laughs> there isn't. There, there is no Big Dipper. <laughs> the Big Dipper is a concept. There are certain stars in a certain pattern, in a certain relationship. We look at the stars, we look at the pattern, we call it Big Dipper, and we separate out those stars from all the other stars in the sky. The power of our concept creates that separation. Actually, is there any separation between those stars? Why, why single out that particular pattern? We've done that with our minds. In the same way that there's no Big Dipper, in exactly the same way there is no self. Self and Big Dipper are, are analogous. That what this is is a constellation of continually changing elements. Elements of mind, elements of body. But we put a concept on it, we put a name on it, we call it Joseph, a man, a woman. Or but that's a concept, that's a name. But as long as we're caught on that level, it solidifies that sense of self, that sense of I, that sense of me. And so in our practice, what we want to do is drop down from that level of concept, drop down from the level of the name, to see what's actually happening in each moment. And what's happening in each moment is the arising of a sound or a sight or a smell or a taste or a touch sensation or a thought or an emotion and it's all arising and passing arising and passing there's nothing substantial there's nothing to hold on to there's nothing to call I there's nothing to call self as we see that and it takes a real refinement of our awareness a refinement of our attention it opens us up to the possibility of relating to the whole range of experience without resistance and without attachment. Our mind becomes very spacious and very open, allowing for whatever, whatever it is that arises, it appears and disappears, appears and disappears. And we don't get caught, we don't get identified, we don't get imprisoned. This is possible for us. It's not some abstract theory. It's possible as we practice, as we pay attention, as we cultivate awareness. So that's why mm, there is so much encouragement to make the effort to be precisely and accurately aware in each moment. Because it's out of that awareness that this understanding arises. And to the degree that we can let go of resistance and be open to things, and to the degree that we can let go of attachment without clinging to things, to that degree we come to a place of peace. a couple of questions if you have. 
The question was, if there's no static sense of self, how does memory fit into that? You know, how come we wake up in the morning and there are certain memories in this that are not in that? To say that there's no self and that what we are is a changing process does not mean that things are happening randomly or chaotically or have no pattern. Just like what we call Big Dipper, there is a pattern to those stars. And actually the pattern is useful because it's from the pattern of the Big Dipper that you can locate the North Star. So it's not to deny that there is a pattern. There is a pattern in this process also. As an example of how the pattern is conditioned over a period of time, suppose you take a piece of wax and you imprint something in the wax and then you take it away. You take the seal away. The imprint remains. But there's nothing from the seal that is carried over into the wax. The seal conditions the form of the wax. But there's no element, there's no entity, there's no static thing which is carried through. In exactly the same way, each moment conditions the arising of the next moment. So there's a conditioning force. It's just that there's no substratum. That this process of change, of conditioned change, doesn't belong to anybody. Rather, what we are is this process of change. Each moment, each moment is sealing the next moment, so to speak. Each moment is conditioning the arising of the next, the arising of the next. And so it's happening very lawfully. It's not happening chaotically, which is another whole talk, of course, is, is understanding the law of karma and how a particular action creates a certain result. So the same way, you, you know, you plant an apple seed, you don't get an orange. You, you get an apple. But the seed undergoes a whole process of transformation. The seed germinates and sprouts and becomes a tree, and the tree bears fruit. And there's nothing from the seed, there's no core to the seed that's carried. The seed that you plant in the ground is not the same as the seed in the apple. And it's not carried through the trunk and up into the leaves and down into the apple. It's a, it's a process of transformation, of change, according to law. And so we are in that same natural process. And that's one of the meanings of the word Dharma. Dharma means law. It's the law of how things are happening. And really our task is to come into harmony with the law. Because if we're fighting it, if we're in, in conflict with it, we suffer. And if we understand it, there's harmony. It's true that uh, sometimes we find ourselves in a situation that mm, is not helpful, you know, is, not, is not nurturing for us. There are different, different factors to consider. If we're in a situation that's not mm, particularly good for us, but in some way we can be of some service or help, that could be a reason to stay and open to it and try to give our energy. Um, sometimes we can't. Sometimes, sometimes there's maybe a negativity that's so strong that it really overwhelms us. Right. A timely retreat. Right. Because if a situation, if we're not able to open to it, and if we don't have Buddha mind yet, and, and, and there's just a, a situation of negativity that is overwhelming, uh, it's, it's definitely better to 
It's better to back away than to actually close our heart. And so in different situations, different responses might be appropriate. There was one case of, in the Buddhist time of a monk wanting to go to this one particular place uh, to practice, to meditate. And the Buddha said, you shouldn't go there. But this monk was very stubborn. And he said again and again, and finally he went. And he went there and meditated, and his mind was just filled with, uh, I think it was filled with lust and craving, just uncharacteristically so. He was just overwhelmed by it. And he came back and reported to the Buddha. The Buddha said the equivalent of, I told you. <laughs> because he knew that that place, for whatever reason, I forget exactly the conditions behind it, that place was not suitable for that person to be, to be there. And so I think there is a, a sensitivity that we need to exercise. Of course, the, the challenge comes when we find ourselves in situations that we have no choice about. And so then the question is, how are we going to relate to it? Are we going to close off or become fearful or panicky? Or will we have enough strength in those situations to stay open? probably get mm, less greed, less hatred, less delusion. <laughs> Just as um, sometimes people imagine this in a way that's not accurate to what actually happens. It's not as if we go from, it's not as if the realization of no self suddenly we enter into this vortex of a black hole, you know, and kind of, and that's what it can sound like, the self disappears and, you know. <laughs> really, the <laughs> everything is exactly the same. It's like by saying there's no Big Dipper, did the stars in the sky disappear? No, the stars are exactly the same, whether we put the concept Big Dipper on them or not. And so it's just seeing that what is actually here remains, which are the physical body and the senses and thoughts and emotions, but we are seeing it rightly, rather than seeing it through the veil of a concept. And it's that particular concept which has a tremendously powerful conditioning force in our lives. It's because of the concept of self that there is greed and aversion, you know, and jealousy and envy and fear. All of those mind states are conditioned by that concept. And so when we can see things as they are without that concept, those things are diminished and finally disappear. So that's how things would change, rather than kind of the sudden, you know, poof, everybody is gone. Okay, I think one last one. <laughs> I think it it is it is very uh, it is very difficult to understand and it's really just kind of planting a seed of a possibility the real understanding will come in yourself through the practice. And that's why we're doing what we're doing. You know, instead of spending all day discussing it, we have a little bit of discussion, and most of the time is actual practice to see, because that's where the opening will take place. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
dot org slash donate.